The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. So Galatians 3:26 through 4:7. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, there, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery and under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when, we set, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Thank you, Kevin. Well, um, as I alluded to just a little while ago, uh, we had a uh, last Sunday. I'm just like looking out, looking, uh, noticing the difference right now. We had a somewhat uh, sparse um, group last week um, for obvious reasons. We had a bit of a storm on our hands, right? But um, there were more of you here than I was expecting. I was kind of impressed. But that being said, uh, many, many of you were not uh, here. So you, you, you missed out on what we spoke about, uh, what we're up to. And so as a heads up, if you didn't notice by that reading, we have jumped back into our sermon series in Galatians. We did that. We started in last week. And um, in fact, we looked at Last week, this very same passage that's printed on the page for you. And the sermon itself, it was a bit of a, a review as a way of trying to like launch us back in to um, Galatians and to, just to get us reconnected with the letter, the theme, uh, because it's been a while. It's been a long while, actually. And at that time, we asked the question, um, what's at the heart of this letter? What's at the heart of Paul's letter? to the churches of Galatia. And what I said then was, at the heart of this letter is a strong argument for the gospel. And then I went a step further than that. I said, um, it's a strong argument for the gospel and for the freedom that is inherent within it, within the gospel itself. Uh, the title of our message this morning is Gospel Freedom Part 2. This is the second message um, with this theme in mind. And for this week, we're going to get more and, more and more um, into some of the specifics and the particulars that are printed here for us, uh, more than we did last week. 
But for the most part, what we're really looking to do is, is to drill down um, on the same things that we looked at last week, to, to, to dig deeper, to look more and more um, at this gospel freedom and what it's about, what's at the heart of this gospel freedom. And so here, this might be a good guiding question for us this week, something to hold on to, something to aim for together this morning. Um, it's kind of like a two-part question. What is gospel freedom? So we're asking that question all over again. And to add to that, why is God so intent on drawing us into it? Um, delivering us, you might even say, into this gospel freedom. In other words, what's the end game? I mean, God, God doesn't, um, initiate things. He doesn't do things without any purpose, without any meaning. And so where is this all leading? What's the trajectory of gospel freedom? And so here's just a few things to note. We're going to begin with what I'm going to call finite freedom. Last week I called it false freedom. This week I'm calling it finite freedom. And um, by finite, of course, I mean something along the lines of like limited, not infinite, uh, bound, confined. Secondly, we'll consider what I'm calling familial freedom, and this will get us more into the particulars of this passage that we did not get into last week. Um, and this um, relates to this word adoption that we see in verse 5, so familial freedom. And then lastly, we'll consider infinite freedom, this altogether unique, limitless, boundless freedom that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's loads of irony that comes along with that, but we'll, we'll get into that as we go. But um, one more time in case you're writing these things down. Finite freedom, familial freedom, and then lastly, infinite freedom. So to begin with, finite freedom. As we discussed last week, there's a great deal of language here that speaks of being not merely limited, um, but bound. Uh, we get phrases, maybe you noticed this as Kevin was reading, we get phrases like in custody, locked up, under guard, enslaved. And Paul speaks of this in reference to the law. However, later he seems to, I talked about this a little bit last week, he seems to widen the aperture. He, he seems to provide a broader context of this enslaving experience that he's talking about. In verse 3 of chapter 4 there, he talks about the experience of being, um, and this is how he puts it, in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. It's a really curious phrase. And what this seems to point to, ironically, is not merely our relationship to the law, as though the law were the real problem that we were up against, but rather our own lawlessness. It's, it is ironic, okay? Um, that in our sin, we want to be a law unto ourselves, like Frank Sinatra, you know, like we want to do it our way. You guys know that one? I did it my way, yeah. Um, and it not only, like, we'll, we'll go far with this. We will go deep with this. We'll even use the law of God itself to do that very thing. We'll convince ourselves that we can do it. We can meet the demands of God's law. In other words, I can do this. I can make myself good. I can make myself whole. I can make myself right. I can reconcile myself 
to God if I need to do that. Ultimately, the idea being, I can save myself. And this harkens back to previous things that we've already heard from Paul. He's been saying stuff like this to us all along in, in reference to our need of the gospel itself. In chapter 2, he told us that, quote, a person is not justified. They are not made good or whole or right by the works of the law, but how? But through faith, not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ. For as he goes on to say, by the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified, he tells us. And here's the thing. Paul wouldn't tell us these things, would he? He wouldn't tell us these things and remind us of these things as frequently as, frequently as he does if he didn't think that we were struggling to comprehend or believe them. He sees a problem. And what I think this tells us, what I think that these um, elemental spiritual forces of the world add up to is that in our sin, our native impulse, our most basic religious impulse is that we want to and that we somehow think that we can save ourselves without any help from God and without any help from anybody else. Okay. And speaking of freedom, I would suggest that this, us trying to, to go it alone like this, the Frank Sinatra way, this is our own attempt at being free, at getting free, of setting ourselves free. Um, we strive to be, here's, here's a 50 cent word, we strive to be autonomous. You guys know that word? In essence, <clears throat> autonomous. Autonomy um, means to be a law unto ourselves, to be self-made men and women, self-made. And this, I would argue, is what you might call finite freedom, limited, confined, binding freedom. Um, th this, there's a great irony this here. This is very ironic uh, because um, we're often convinced that, that doing it our way, Doing it Frank's way is the surest way to experience true and expansive freedom. Like this is, this is the way. This is the highway that's going to get me there. Um, to be free of others, to be free both of the help of others and the demands of others, to be free of the burdens of others and to be free of the expectations of others. And this very same idea, that autonomy is, you know, we believe is somehow the surest pathway to real freedom. This, um, this also, if you're, if you're thinking with me, this isn't just a, a horizontal thing. This is a, a vertical thing. This has spiritual implications, which is to say that we likewise want to be free from the burdens and the demands of God, to be free of him. And you're thinking like, come on, Doug. Really? Not me. To be free of him, to, to, to get the divine monkey off of our backs and this, I would argue, is in great part behind our own, I mean, just coming back to the law for a minute. Like, what's the connection to the law? This, this um, perhaps is behind all of our moral efforts to fulfill the law and our own power and strength. You know, like, if I can, this is the divine monkey here, okay? If I can meet his demands, well, then maybe I can keep him at a distance. You know? This is kind of what we would do with our parents as kids, isn't it? You know, like, if I just keep my room clean, and maybe they'll just leave me alone. 
I can have some space. I can be free to be my own man, to be my own woman. Then maybe I can go it alone and carve out my own destiny without all of these entanglements of him, of others. This, I believe, is the elemental spiritual forces of the world that Paul is speaking of here. We think we're setting ourselves free in this way, but ironically, nothing could be further than the truth. This makes me think of the song, I Am a Rock. You guys know this one? Simon and Garfunkel, I Am a Rock? Okay. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Simon and Gar- Garfunkel, they were a um, fantastic folk duo, really well-known for their harmonies, great harmonies, and um, uh, best known for the work that they did in the 60s and 70s, also known for their like their breakup, which is ironic to what I'm about to talk about here. But um, in 1966, they wrote this song, I Am a Rock. Here's just a few lines from it, and just see if this kind of gets at what I've been talking about so far. <clears throat> I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. You know this? If I never loved, I never would have cried. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island and a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. What's, what, what's the idea here? In other words, I, what I think they're saying is, I'm setting myself free. I'm setting myself free from all of these old burdens of love and relationships and connections. I've been burned too many times. I'm wising up. I'm getting smart. And I'm ridding myself of all of those miserable entanglements. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman now. I'm a rock. I'm an island unto myself. And a rock feels no pain in an island never cries, I'm free, right? What is this? You know what it is. It's a crock. It's what it is. Come on. I mean, I think that Simon and Garfunkel knew that when they were singing it. It's like, who are you fooling? Who are you kidding? You're not kidding us, right? Bologna sandwiches, as I like to say to my kids. Um... What are we saying to ourselves? We're saying relationships are burdensome. This is what we tell ourselves. Relationships are burdensome. Relationships are limiting. I have to navigate and, and uh, negotiate their preferences, their differences, and their critiques, and their junk, and it's so confining. I just, I need, I need to breathe. I need some space, right? I need some freedom. I'm out of here. I'm peacing out. I'm going to go get a, I'm going to go rent a single apartment. Have a nice life. Um, this is a, a bit of an exaggeration, maybe. I don't know. Um, and But where did, when we do this, if you've ever done this, if you've ever taken this kind of posture towards others and just humanity, like I've had it, um, where does it leave us? Well, it leaves us alone, right? I mean, I think that's pretty obvious, right? Um, and maybe we would call that freedom. And, I, and I'll just, we got to be honest here, okay? I'm going to be honest from up here. Uh, come on now. You're with me on this, I bet. Maybe, some of you. Sometimes that idea sounds pretty fantastic. 
okay? Really. I mean, really, it really does. It sounds, it sounds really good to me, you know, to go off, maybe be a hermit somewhere, just grab a couple of good books, a couple of good records off and away. Sounds pretty nice. And it might be for a little while. Maybe. It probably would be for a little while. Okay. And you might call that freedom. Free. To be left alone, unburdened by others, no one putting any kind of demands on you, any kinds of expectations on you, free of them. So technically speaking, you could, I'm being technical now, you could also call this, I think you could call it, isolation. Because that's what it means. Isn't that what, isn't that what it is? Isolation. In prison, they call this solitary confinement, by the way. You're confined to yourself in prison, in solitary confinement. You can find yourself left to your own company with no one else, no one else to impose upon you in any way. Sounds Sound good to you? Solitary confinement? Speaking of this, this notion of freedom, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the lost, speaking of those who, who don't know God, those who perhaps have, have knowingly rejected God, he said, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. Man, I took a turn there, didn't I? He's speaking of hell, of course. How ironic. No, wrong word. How tragic. That's the right word. This isn't freedom. You see, this isn't freedom. Rather, this is what Paul describes for us here. It's captivity. This is the kinds of words he's using over and over again. And this is what sin always does. Do you see this? This is what sin is always doing in your life. If you're paying attention, it always promises us freedom. This is a great idea, Doug. Go for it. It always promises us freedom, and then it leads us into to isolation. And it leads us into captivity. It gets us alone. It cuts us off. It alienates us from others. It alienates us from God. And this is not freedom. It's not. And this is why Paul is most passionately proclaiming the gospel to this group of people. He's saying, Galatians, you've been delivered. But now... You want to return to captivity. Who's bewitched you? Come on, guys. This is like Israel, isn't it? If you know anything about Old Testament history, this is like Israel. They were delivered from, from the captivity of Egypt, and then they said, take us back. We want to go back. There's freedom back there. But here's the thing. They were not free in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And Paul is saying, guys, return to Christ. He alone can provide you with the real thing. The real thing. True freedom. And it's here, coming into chapter 4 here, that Paul begins to pull back the, the veil and to begin to show us in this very um, wonderful, expansive sort of a way what kind of freedom he has in mind, what kind of freedom it is that we enter into when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. He peels back all of the layers here. 
he gives us what you could call a timeless view of real freedom. Timeless view. This brings us into our second point. And um, this is a big shift that we're about to take here. This point is called familial freedom, which is a funny way of saying family. Okay? Another 50-cent word for you. Um, you say you say to me, family freedom? That sounds like an oxymoron, Doug. You haven't met my siblings. You haven't met my parents. You haven't met my spouse. Right? But look at what Paul is showing us here. This family language begins in verse 26 of uh, chapter 3, where uh, Kevin got us started. Listen for it. Listen for this familial component. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. What's he saying? He's saying, you're family. You're of the same seed and heirs. According to the promise, this is all familial language here. Paul is saying, here's how gospel freedom works. Welcome to, you guys are going to like this. Welcome to your new enormous family. Welcome in. People of all stripes. People like you. People not like you. People unlike you. People from across the tracks who you probably won't relate to very easily. Rich and poor. Male and female. Your culture and not your culture. Lots to navigate, lots to negotiate, lots to learn, lots of patience and flexibility required, lots of change required. Prepare to be burdened, prepare to be limited and constrained in various ways, prepare to serve, prepare to give of yourself for the sake of others. Welcome to the family. Welcome to freedom. This is going to be great. You're going to love it. Sound good? This is God's idea of freedom. This is just a little bit, just a little bit of the irony of the gospel, the contrary nature of the gospel. But why, though? Why is it? Why? Why does God think that this is a good idea, that this is the right way, the way of freedom. Why does he think that? It's, it's, um, please notice something that's happening in this passage with me. It's a very easy, th easy thing to overlook. Uh, look back with me at verses four through six of chapter four now. Paul writes this, but when the set time had fully come, God, speaking of God the Father here, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those under the law, to redeem us, meaning to set us free. There it is. But why? Why? He tells us why. He expresses the, aim, the end game. Remember where we started our question? He expresses the end game, the trajectory of this gospel freedom. Why? That we might receive adoption to sonship, that we might become children of God. 
That's where this freedom's leading, that we might become children of God. But wait, there's more. Verse 6, now, because you are his sons, because you are his children, sons and daughters, because this is true, because this is the case, God then sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, that cries out with abandonment like a little child. Abba, Father, Daddy. And there is so much to notice here. But the thing that I'd like for us to notice first is that this is a deeply, this is the thing that I was saying you could overlook. This is a deeply Trinitarian passage of Scripture. God the Father sent the Son to us to set us free. And having done that, he then sent us the Spirit to indwell us, to to truly bring home to us the love of God. The experience of the reality of the life of God, the experience of being God's children. And what this should teach us, what this should remind us of, is the fact that the reality and the life of God is not a solitary experience. You see? It never has been. It never will be. I'm not here to explain to you all the, the mysteries of the Godhead this morning. I, I couldn't, nor would there be time. But I do want to point out just that one thing, if I could, this, this, this one thing, that God is and has always been in a state of holy community within himself. And I know that's a lot to take in. It's a lot. But it's what classic Christianity teaches us. God knows nothing about being alone. He only knows connection. He only knows communion. And his only true experience, if you're thinking with me, the only time God has ever known anything other than that, the only time that God has ever known the experience of isolation was when? When, It's when Jesus hung on the cross. What did Jesus do in that moment? I'll I'll read a little bit of it for you. This is an interesting connection to make. You can read this in the Gospels. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Same word. Same phrase. Of cry cry out, Abba, Father. Same phrase. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? Why have you left me in this state of isolation? Why have you left me to face this all alone? To Jesus, this was not the experience of freedom. It was the opposite of freedom. It was horrifying. It was hellish. It was totally outside of his experience because this is not the experience of the reality in the life of God. To have an encounter with God, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to embrace the reality of the life of God in and through Jesus Christ is to embrace inherently a shared life. Not a solitary one. Life together in all that comes with it. All of the mess that comes with it. And get this, to see it 
ironic as this may sound, is the only way forward into true freedom. To see that shared experience, mess and all, is the only way forward into true freedom. Anything else is false and finite. Which, if this is true, means that our whole concept of freedom needs to be recast. It needs to be relearned. We have to start all over again if we want to understand what true freedom is. And so, if you really want freedom, prepare for something totally different. And we're not going to cover all of what that might entail in this one message, but with the time that I have left, I just if we could just begin to consider it together and um, to just trust that going forward into the letter of Galatians, we're going to have many, many opportunities to see this reality unearthed for us. But um, let's, let's start here. And this brings us into our final point, by the way. Infinite freedom. So, so far we've considered finite freedom. We've considered familial freedom. Now, last, infinite freedom. How does this gospel freedom stuff actually work? Where does it get its power from? That might be a way of asking it. Put differently, if gospel freedom is going to lead me into deeper connection with God and with others, rather than away from them, into isolation, how is it going to do that? How is it going to empower me to do that very thing? And we just got through reading a powerhouse of statements. Um, just a moment ago, we read that the Father is for us. It didn't say that explicitly, but if you're reading between the lines, that's what it told us, that the Father is for us. How do we know? He sent his Son to redeem us. That's how we know. How else? And get this, this was pointed out for me this week. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I ever really noticed or really fully comprehended this. He sent his spirit to us, you could put it this way, as an extra. That may sound strange. The work of Christ fully redeemed us. We read that here. Like the, the, what Jesus did on the cross fully redeemed us. We were fully made his children through the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. God sent his son, this is what we read, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, verse 6, because you are his sons, sons and daughters, because in other words, it's done, it's complete, it's legit, nothing more needed here. If you know Christ, you are a son and daughter of God right now. Right now, not later. Not pie in the sky, now. And that's amazing, but it gets more amazing. Paul writes, because you are his sons, sons and daughters of God, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, who cries out, Abba, Father. This is grace upon grace. Full redemption, and then added to that, the literal power and reality and life of God indwelling us, teaching us, comforting us, guiding us, correcting us, maturing us, on and on I could go, serving us. 
drawing us into the life of God. Do you see all this? But now notice verse 7 with me where I believe Paul boils these things down for us and shows us something incredibly powerful and empowering. He says, verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. If you know him this morning, it means you belong to him and all that belongs to him now belongs to you. That's what Paul's saying. And at the very least, this sets us free to do what? At the very least, of the many things I could say, it sets us free to love others. At the very least, at the very least. How? I'm just going to highlight one thing for us as we finish up here. One practical fruit of gospel freedom, okay? Here's one. It saves us from self-obsession. It saves us from self-obsession. Listen to this old quote. It comes from uh, Joseph Priestley, who was an English theologian, not to mention he was a chemist, he was a philosopher, he was a teacher. I love how he puts this. This quote is uh, over 200 years old. It sounds like it could have been written yesterday. He says, to me, there is in happiness an element of self-forgetfulness. You lose yourself in something outside yourself when you are happy. You guys relate to that? You just kind of like just lose track of yourself. You're just having such a good time. Just as when he's, he's contrasting now, this is the opposite, this is the flip side. Just as when you are des- desperately miserable, you are intensely conscious of yourself, are a solid lump of ego weighing a ton. That's great. Isn't that what it feels like? When you're just like so self-obsessed? Why is it so hard to love people? Why is it so hard? And it's because we can't see beyond the length of our own arms. We're so intensely concerned about ourselves. Am I the only one? We're so intensely concerned about ourselves. Our lives revolve around us. We're the star of our own stories. Everybody else is the supporting cast of our life. And we expect everyone to understand that. Like, come on, guys, did you not get the memo? This is why we so desperately want to get free of people and of God because they seem to be suggesting that this reality isn't true. Like, come on. It's very upsetting to us that they don't understand what's happening. But the love of God, the acceptance of God, the adoption of God holds the power to break this spell that we're all under. Because we're all under it. It holds the power to break us free from the, you could put it like this, I guess, the claustrophobic, solitary confinement of our our navel-gazing selves. All right? It breaks us out of ourselves so that we can begin to see both God and others, not as a threat, but as a gift. Um, I mean, what might this look like? I'll just rattle off a couple of things. What what might it look like for us to be broken of the spell and of the pattern of self-obsession? Well, maybe, you know, we, we no longer look out and sit in judgment of those around us that we don't know, that we don't understand. May we, we, we begin to extend our own experience of grace and mercy that we find ourselves 
receiving through Christ. Maybe we're quicker to listen, slower to speak. Maybe this family experience, trying to understand one another, causes us to walk alongside of, of one another, taking on one another's burdens without viewing one another as burdens. Joy to joy, grief to grief. Um, I'm going long here. I'm going to end now um, after this story. Uh, I think this is relatable. I just heard this from a, a good friend. They were on a trip. Uh, he and his wife um, got away. They, they needed to break away, right? We all need you know, take a break. Um, they went to New York City for a few days. And um, I can't remember the name of the, the park. There's a park somewhere in, in uh, New York City where there's this big fountain. There's a bunch of tables around with a chessboard set up, people playing chess. Somebody probably knows. But they were walking by. Uh, um, <clears throat> uh, there were, weren't a lot of people around. And there was this older gentleman who was sitting at one of these uh, tables with a chessboard by himself. And my buddy and his wife are walking by, and he kind of like you know, calls out to my buddies, hey, come on. Let's play. Come on. And my buddy goes, eh, not feeling so strong today. I, I think I'm going to pass. And um, listen to what this guy said to him next. He said, I'd rather teach you than beat you. He still said no. But he couldn't get that phrase out of his head. I'd rather teach you than beat you. I don't want to conquer you. I'd rather give you something than take something from you. When the spirit of adoption begins to rearrange the furniture of our hearts, reordering our affections to better reflect the heart and the life of God, that is what our posture can begin to look like. That instead of being defensive and self-protective, Instead of needing to look good at the expense of others, instead of feeling that we need to win the conversation, win the argument, conquer others in order to feel good about ourselves, we can begin to look outward to others and say things like that. I'd rather teach you than beat you. I'd rather love you than shove you. <laughs> I'd rather bless you than mess with you. I could do this all day. I'd rather be for you than against you. God is for you. He's not against you. How do you know? How can I say that? How can I be so confident? He laid down his life that he might draw you in, that he might call you son, call you daughter. He laid his, his life down that that might be true of you this morning. Do you know that? Have you heard that voice that says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom is all my delight? Have you heard that? You can. Through Christ. Let me pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, what a uh, an overwhelming, rich, tremendous hard to comprehend truth we're faced with in this passage. That you sent your son to redeem us that we might receive 
adoption to sonship and daughtership. Oh, what a wonderful thing. And you've given us your spirit that it might just ring true in us, in our hearts and minds. Uh, God, I pray that that would be our experience this morning, all of us. Uh, and God, um, as we take that in, as we drink deeply of this gospel freedom, uh, would you begin to do a work in us? Would you rearrange the furniture of our hearts and our minds? Would you reorder our affections that we would better reflect the Lord Jesus himself? And it's in his name we pray and give thanks. Amen.